Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Okay, so hopefully you've had the opportunity to talk amongst yourselves and kind of remember uh, what it is that we have been talking about. Um, I will tell you, as as I was preparing for uh, this week, just because of the way that things worked out with the break in between, I was trying to figure out how in the world do I want to approach uh, coming back in. Uh, in other words, we had... Uh, a two-week period since the last time we met. So trying to figure out how, how, how are we going to get back into this. Well, one of the things that I like to do personally uh, in my own reflection time, my own meditation time, is read uh, hymns. And I like to read those hymns knowing the story behind the 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 writing of the hymn. I think that's very fascinating. If you've never done that, I would encourage you uh, to find a way to do that. There's tons of information on the internet. As a matter of fact, if you just Google most hymns, there will be, part of it will be the writing of that hymn and you'll be able to find it. Well, there is a hymn that uh, it's it's on my phone and I thought, you know, I, I don't listen to this hymn very often. And I wonder what the story is, so I I wanted to find out about it. And the name of the hymn is called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Um, It's typically one that you would sing around Christmas, um, if you are familiar with it. It is uh, traditionally known as a, um, a Christmas hymn. But what I found interesting is it was actually a poem that a monk wrote back in the 4th century. Way back at 340, around 347, it appears for the first time in something called the Liturgy of St. James. And for the longest time, people thought St. James, this liturgy, liturgy of St. James, was actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was called James the Lesser. Well, come to find out, it, that's just what it was called. You know, kind of like Mike's class. This isn't Mike's class. This is the Adult Ministry Center. Uh, so same thing. But anyways, he wrote this because in that time frame, most people were illiterate. And so you couldn't simply say, uh, here, just, just take this and read this um, and meditate on it. And so they would, they would do things like creeds so that people could memorize them. And then as they reflected on that, it was teaching them biblical truth, Right. Well, that's what this poem ended up being. But what I found interesting, it was recited as the uh, parishioners were approaching the Eucharist. Now, what is the Eucharist? We don't use that term. The Lord's Supper, Jesus' table, communion, whatever you want to call it. It was traditionally called that in the Catholic Church. It was called the Eucharist. And uh, so these these lyrics would be almost sung as like a Gregorian chant. If you've ever heard ancient monasteries, ancient monks, they would do this. It's, it's really a beautiful form of music. It's a beautiful form of memory. Well, in the 19th century, uh, a modern hymn writer ran across this, and apparently he was so impressed with it that he put it to music and he formalized it into the hymn that we know as Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And I wanted to just read to you 
the lyrics from that. So it's going to be in somewhat poetic form because I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, you have to look that up on the internet. You can hear it. Uh, but it says this. I probably better wear glasses. That's pretty small print. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. Now this next section you're going to hear Isaiah chapter 6 and this is the point. At his feet the six-winged seraph cherubim with sleepless eye veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia Lord Most High. So if you recall in Isaiah chapter 6 the last time that we met together there was this vision that Isaiah had and in reality we call that his call. It is the time when God calls him out of what he is doing into the ministry that he's going to be doing. Uh, But before that we looked at this concept of depravity and depravity is typically defined as the inability to stop sinning. Uh, When we talk about depravity, we are talking about the fact that the totality of the human nature has been affected by sin. So there is no no part of us that is unaffected by sin, okay? Our mind, our body. You know, if you were here last week, especially on Saturday, you heard Dr. Jennings talk about how the degradation of our DNA, that that is evidence that that sin is working in our lives and it is causing this, this general decline. Uh, So that's part of depravity. But the part that we oftentimes forget to remember, it's kind of an oxymoron, right? Mm. The part that we fail to remember is it's also the inability to truly repent. Uh, Sam and I were talking about this before class, that idea that when you get caught in something, you're sorry because you got caught, but you just want the, the consequences to end so you can go on to do whatever, right? And isn't that how we saw Adam and Eve respond when they were caught? I'm, I'm naked, so I don't want to see you, so I'm hiding. And then Adam says it was the woman, and the woman says it was the serpent, and so the blame game starts. And yet, in that, we saw this character of God um, that was evident, that was surprising in that. Uh, Here you had a situation where a holy God was offended, and yet, what is God doing? When Adam and Eve sin and they're hiding, what does God do? He looks for him. He comes searching. He actively seeks the lost. And we called that his otherness. Today we're going to put a term to that, but, but for the time being we just called that his otherness. The thing that makes him unique amongst all uh, other things. 
Then last week we looked at Isaiah 6, and in Isaiah 6 we saw something that was, in my opinion, very fascinating. That is, there are these beings, and this was uh, referred to in, uh, in the hymn that I just read from, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. The, the six-winged winged seraphim means fiery ones. They are a created order of being that apparently do nothing but attend to God. And yet, in that they are created for the specific purpose of being in the presence of God. And yet, what do we find them doing? They cover their face and they cover their feet. Because there is a recognition that you can't create something that can be in the presence of absolute holiness. God can't create himself. Think about that. You know, if somebody asks you the question, what's one thing God can't do? God can't create himself. He just is. That is what makes him other. That is what makes him who he is. The fact that when uh, uh, Deuteron- uh, yeah, Deuteronomy says the Lord our God is one, that's exactly what he's saying. There, there is nobody else like him. You can look anywhere you want to. You're not going to find anybody like him. So he creates in his image, but he can't recreate himself. But we also saw something else. So Isaiah sees the holiness of God, and and how does it affect Isaiah? Is he like, oh, this is cool, I'm glad I'm here. What does he say? Woe is me. Cursed is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the... Notice Isaiah, he doesn't just single himself out. He's an equal opportunity share. I live amongst a bunch of people that are also unclean, and there's no hope for us. Now remember, this is Isaiah's call to ministry. And as God has called him, here's Isaiah saying, I'm not worthy, and the people that you've called me to are not worthy. And what do we see God doing? Do you remember the story? What happens next? The angel who is the minister of God flies from the presence of God and carries the coal, touches it to his lips and says, now you're clean. God is making us clean. So again, in both cases, even though we see a, a, uh, a uh, distance that cannot be crossed In human terms, God is covering the distance. And in covering that distance, we see him displaying for us who he really is. Does that make sense? And I want you to grasp that because if you don't, you will totally miss the character of God. Because one of the things that we're going to talk about today is balance. In God's nature, there is always balance. It doesn't matter um, what it... Well... I, I wasn't going to do this, but I, I think let's, let's just do this. Uh, how many of you have children? Okay. Did you ever get frustrated in parenting your children? And <laughs> my wife's sitting right by one of ours raising her hands. Uh, so did you ever get frustrated in your parenting to where you love them, but you maybe weren't acting in love at the time? The rest of you are liars. <laughs> we struggle with balance in our nature, do we not? In other words, we love our children. We want them to do a certain thing. But in that moment, frustration takes over. 
And so we tend to visualize God in that environment. We tend to visualize him as, well, he's this right now. He's angry, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's gracious. Or God is everything at all times equally the same. So his anger and his love can be equally represented at all times. And that's what we're going to see in what we look at today. So, so turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40. And what I want to do is uh, I'm going to read what it is that we're going to be looking at. And uh, we... Uh, Dennis, Dennis kind of made me hungry earlier. He was talking about marinating things and all that, and so now I'm. So we're just going to marinate on this for a little bit, and I'm going to ask you a question after we read this. So I'm going to begin uh, verse ten in Isaiah chapter forty. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and His arm rules for Him. See, His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord God consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him in the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing, they are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers to this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. 
He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Um, We didn't read the whole chapter because... The first nine verses really state the same thing. It's just in a different, uh, it's, it's directed more to Israel. And so uh, not to confuse the issue, I, I thought we would just start there. So I want you to think of something. Um, and I have to look at my notes because I want to make sure I ask, I struggled with this question. I want to make sure I ask it correctly. Do you ever grow weary of living in an evil place? As you look at the world around you or you look at uh, your neighborhood around you, you know, you determine the scope. Do you ever grow weary of living in a place like that? This is open for debate. Yes, no, maybe so, I think so. Okay, I see a lot of head shaking and if you had marbles in there, I would hear them and I would know what you're... Is that a yes? I mean, yes. you grow weary? Okay. Yes. When that happens, what kind of God do you want? When you are weary of living in an evil place, what kind of God do you want? One that can reassure you. One that can reassure me? Okay. Loving, Loving God? Understanding. Understanding God? Warrior. Warrior? Justice. Somebody that will bring justice? To the world? End it all. Say that again. Somebody that will end it all, end the suffering, end the evil? Okay. I think somebody that would lift you up. Somebody that will lift you up, that will give you the opportunity to to keep going in that circumstance? Okay. Comforter. Comforter. Let me ask you this question. Do you want that evil to exist forever and to continue on? No. No. Why not? You're miserable. Because there's something inside of us that says this has to end and, and rightness has to happen, right? Um, so not only do we want the ability to endure that situation, to have the, the comforting, uh, but we also want the strong God that can overcome it, right? Go back to Isaiah chapter 40, look at verse 10, and you will see both of those. See, first of all, notice the what he is called here, the sovereign Lord. What does that term mean? See the sovereign Lord. What does it mean that God is sovereign? In charge? In Ruler over all things. So sometimes, when I was a kid, we used to sing this song. It kind of had a, a Middle Eastern feel. King of kings and Lord of lords. Has anybody ever heard? Dun, 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 dun. And it was kind of fun to sing. But the truth of that song was incredible. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. What does sovereignty mean? What is God not in control of? That would be nothing. That's exactly what that word means. He is the instrumental cause of all that is, was, and ever will be. 
either primarily or secondarily. He has caused those things to be. And so therefore he will in some way bring it all to a fulfillment. And so when Isaiah uh, is sharing this, he is speaking of the, the, this character of God that is unique in this situation. Now remember, the situation that Isaiah finds himself in, uh, it, it's important. We don't, uh, Jeff Zimmerman brought this up and he's like, I'm reading the book of Isaiah and I have so many questions I want to know. We're not really studying the book of Isaiah, right? I mean, we're just dropping in, uh, looking at different episodes um, as, as things happen. But generally speaking, we talked about this, I think, last week or two weeks ago. The nation is divided. The northern kingdom's been carried off into captivity. The southern kingdom is going to be carried off into captivity. And so everything that it seems, remember, the promise to Abraham was, I'm going to make of you a great nation. It looks like the wheels are coming off that baby. And so Isaiah is in this situation. And so when he says this, what he's talking about is in regards to the, the state of Israel. He says, see... The sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. When we see a world where the wheels are coming off, when evil is rampant, we want a God that is in control of that kind of world, a God that is over that kind of world. And that's exactly what Isaiah says. See, there is this God who has this character about him where he is strong, he is going to reward, he is going to repay. But notice verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. In that statement that Isaiah opens this section with, we see this incredible balance in the character of God. He can be both strong and comforting all at the same time. As a matter of fact, the comfort that he provides for his people, Isaiah is going to go on and talk about this, comes from his strength. If you have a God that is impotent, he can't do anything about it. I mean, he can come alongside and say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're suffering. That, uh, that's empathy, right? <laughs> Make sure I'm getting the right word. Is that right, Jim? Sympathy. sympathy. So he can come alongside and say, I feel bad for you, but he can't do anything about it. That's sympathy? Okay. He's just going to be there with you. Just going to say, I'm so sorry. But we want a God who can come into that circumstance and can give something that is going to change that. And what is the something that he can give? It's a four-letter word. Begins with H, ends in E. What's that? Hope. He gets hope. He gives something that we can look forward to and cling to. And how do we cling to that thing? Five-letter word begins with F, ends in H. <laughs> faith. We cling to that hope via faith. So I, I, am, uh, I was challenged. Um, this is kind of completely off the subject, but I'll throw this out to you. I was challenged by something that Dr. Jennings talked about last week in the uh, Aging Brain Seminar. Uh, apparently, I have an aging brain. And that is, you've got to learn new things. You know, that, that helps you to make new connections. And, and with my brain, I want to make sure that I'm maximizing it. So I'm currently listening to a video series on... Um, 
the history of philosophy and Christian thought. And it's taught by a high school teacher in, um, I want to say he's in Oregon somewhere. And to listen to what he's teaching these high school students, we would all be embarrassed. But he teaches in what is called the Socratic way. What is the Socratic way of teaching? Say that again. Asking questions, it is the idea that you know more than you think you know. It's just I have to have a dialogue with you to draw that information out of there. Sometimes we talk, we call it critical thinking. The idea that you're putting the pieces together, you know, I'm throwing the pieces out there, you're drawing them together into a general theme. So when I do these things like, you know, Four-letter word starts with H. You know what that is. It's just evidence that you guys have an aging brain, too, and you can't get to those. (laughs) That was the setup for that joke. Sorry. Okay, so what we see here is this idea that God's um, attributes are in complete balance. They are not in, in uh, disharmony with one another, but they are in complete harmony with one another. So what does that mean? Um, we're going to go on and look at a couple of the other things in here, but I want to make sure that we get this idea, um, that we, that we kind of grasp that both sides of God's nature, when they seem contradictory things, they are in complete harmony. What does that mean for us in reality? It's kind of a a confusing question, and really it's not a right or wrong. It's just I want to see what you're thinking about this. Ask it again. Yeah. So if we were to, I'm, I'm just going to throw two, two concepts up here. Uh, so we have seen the strength of God um, in verse 10. <laughs> and in uh, verse 11, we have seen the compassion of God. Um, so when those two things are working together in harmony, what is that really revealing to us about who God is? Does that make sense? That he loves us and walks with us, but also expects that um, we be responsible and that we emulate him and look like him. Okay. That... that, He loves us, he's walking with us, and yet he is trying to get us to to come up to a different level. Kind of like we do with our kids. There's a standard with which we want our kids to measure up. So so we discipline them, and I don't mean, you know, we smack them around. I mean, we train them from where they are to hopefully get them up to where we want them to be. I think I was thinking more generally, he's he's balanced and complete. Okay. So he's different from us in the sense that we tend to... We have, I found it interesting that the majority of the women talked about his compassion and that strengthening side, and then the guys were like, ah, give him, you know, the power side. And so he is complete in and of himself. He, he contains both things. Okay. Uh, so it talks about his completeness, um, that there is no thing lacking with him. He has both, both the strength and the compassion. Okay. Any, any other thoughts? 
Uh, like I said, this really is not a right or wrong question. I just kind of want to see where where you are. Uh, that helps me to decide where we're going to go from here. So. I, I don't want a weak God, mm-hmm. and, and although the compassion is not weakness, yep. but, uh, but I want a God that is strong, but I don't want that all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't want a tyrant, you know, that would, is forceful and forces uh, you into his way of thought, but then yet the compassionate side also, I, I want that combined. Okay. God, God's balanced that way. Yeah. Um, I was really, really disturbed this past week, not to get political, but some of the things that are, are taking place that in a government that was formed uh, with the hand of God upon it, and this past week there were people that were put in offices or went on committees, and as they were being sworn in, at the end of the statement, which is 99.9% of the time said, uh, so help you God, and it was left out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was done intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, how I seen that also was that that was saying that that I'm higher than God. Mm-hmm. I don't have anyone above me that that I would swear to or that I would you know look to. Right. Um, but our God is a compassionate God and a strength, a, a strong father and mm-hmm. he brings that together mm-hmm. so we see both sides of his nature and both sides bring some level of understanding and comfort does it not yes. and I think what I what I you know we will next week uh, remember this is where we begin the process of so we're talking only this week about the attribute next week we're going to say okay how does this affect us and we're going to take a rather uh, uh, unique approach to the way that we do these applications. Um, by the way, if you're not, you know, have not been doing this, this isn't required homework. But remember, you have that spiritual perception inventory that you can look at those things and it helps you to think through these things. And I would encourage you to do it on both sides of the teaching. Uh, look at it before as well as after and see, has it changed my perception at all? So what I want to do now is we have seen this uh, this balanced nature of, of God's attributes. And remember, we talked about the otherness of God. Uh, so I want to put a couple of terms here uh, so that we begin to, to have a hook to hang our thoughts on. Um, the first term that I'm going to put up here uh, is the term transcendence. <laughs> if I can get my arm to work. I'm going to put an apostrophe or a period there because I can't finish it. Transcendence. What does transcendence mean? To go beyond. To go beyond? If we say um, it transcends reality that a plane can fly. I can't get my mind around how a, you know, I don't know what a plane weighs, but it's heavy. Especially once you put all the people on there, but it flies as if nothing. So it transcends my ability to, to grasp that, okay? It goes beyond, it's above, okay? Now I'm going to put another uh, term, and I'll put it over here. Imminent. What does that word mean? Gonna Say that again? Gonna it's going to happen. Right Why is it going to happen right now? Because it's near. 
That's what that word means. If something is imminent, it's close. So when we talk about God's nature, we are saying he is both transcendent, that is, he is above, he goes beyond comprehension, but he is also near, he is imminent, he is involved. Now, I want you to keep those terms in mind, okay, transcendence and imminence, and as we... Uh, as we look through the rest of this, uh, we're going to look at it fairly quickly, but I want you to pick those out, okay? Pick out his transcendence, pick out his imminence, see them in balance. So, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Uh, quite simply, what this is saying is, who could hold the ocean like this? Is that an imminent God or a transcendent God? That is a God that you and I cannot understand. Think of the amount of water that is in all of the oceans, lakes, streams, rivers in the, in the world. And you can hold it right there. If that doesn't cause you to be in awe of the God that you serve, there's something wrong with your gray matter. Uh, because it, it does cause our, our mind to, to twist into a pretzel. Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. So that's simply saying the distance between my thumb and my pinky is the distance across the universe. How far are we away from the sun? How long does it take light to get to us? Longer than that. 8.3 minutes. From the time that it generates on the sun's surface to us, it takes 8.3 minutes. We are 93 million miles, and, and light travels how fast? 186,000 feet per second, I think, if I remember that right. So if you do the math, it's 8.333333333333 minutes for, for that light to get here. And yet God can measure the entirety. Remember, that's just our solar system. That's the distance from our earth to the sun. That's not across our solar system. That's not across our galaxy. It's not nearly across from our galaxy to the next or across our universe. And, and God's hand can stretch across that. As a matter of fact, physicists tell us our universe is expanding, which means so is God. His ability to comprehend that and to enclose that is never, never full. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand or the breadth of his hand marked the basket? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? I don't know if you have ever been uh, to a place where you've seen incredibly large mountains. Uh, we have some big mountains here in the U.S., but we don't have any Himalayan mountains here in the U.S. Uh, I was watching something recently that was talking about the Himalayans, and it was talking about this bird. Um, I don't remember what kind of bird, but it would fly over, and, and the only way it could do this uh, was basically because of the upcurrents of the uh, that come up the mountain is that hot air would cause it to, to rise up. And by the time the bird got to the other side, it was so exhausted, it would just, for six months, do nothing but eat, and it couldn't fly. Uh, and then it would go back, um, take about two months to go back. Uh, it was really pretty interesting. Um, so thinking about God, he weighs them in a balance. 
Uh, verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as, excuse me, instructed him as his counselor? Think about that for a minute. Whoever comes before God and instructs... Now, I want, I want to be very careful here. Think about your prayer life. What is it that we do when we come before God in prayer? Most of the time, what are we doing? We are petitioning. We are asking Him for something with the idea that he should give it to us. He should change our circumstance, not change me, but change our circumstance so that I don't have to live in whatever my circumstance is. Uh, I need more money. I need a job. I need whatever. I think if we had the proper attitude about God, we wouldn't approach prayer that way. We would approach it more like Jesus did when he said, My Father in heaven, holy be your name. Make it magnificent. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, in my life as it is uh, where you are. And so I just share that with you to, to caution you to think that somehow we are influencing or instructing the mind of God. Remember, God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He does not need our counsel in order to understand these things. Now, I want to just quickly... Yeah, go ahead. Doesn't he want dialogue with us? Why does he want dialogue with us? I'm just thinking of Moses. Mm-hmm. You know, where God says, well, I'm just going to smite yeah. all of them. Restart with you. So who was that for, God? Oh, no. It was for Moses, wasn't it? God didn't... So there are three times in the Bible where it says God repents. God repented of what he was going to do, or he relented, sometimes it will say. Does that mean that God literally had to change his mind and answer to a higher power? Absolutely not. It simply means what God's original intention was, he was going to do, but he did something else in the meantime to transform the person he was talking with. So think about Moses in that state. Moses or Abraham, another good example. Are you going to destroy that town? What if there's 20 people there? What if there's 10 people there? What does Abraham come to realize? There's a truth in the New Testament. It's found about Romans 3. How many good people are there on the earth? Zero. And so anything that God does at that point we're going to talk next week about what is just and what is unjust and, and why a, a, a God could, could hold us accountable. What, what could we have ever done to hold us accountable? We'll, we'll talk about that, kind of giving that away. Um, but the idea that God is changing the perspective, so he does want dialogue, but it's not for him. And that's the point I think that Isaiah is making here. It's not that he does not want that dialogue. It's not that we cannot pour out our heart to him. It's not that we can't do that. But think of Job. If you have never read the story of Job, I encourage you to do that. Because in the end, God responds to Job. And what does Job say? I thought I knew you. (laughs) I didn't know you. I put my hand over my mouth and I'm shutting up. That is the way that we should respond to a God who is transcendent. 
Now remember, his eminency is is something different. Yes. I think also, you know, in prayer, when you're talking about in prayer, how many times I have gone to God with my great ideas, mm-hmm. my great suggestions, and learning, you know, this this is so convicting that you know he doesn't need. I, I have not come up with a thought that he has not already thought of. Right. And so, rather than you know giving my <laughs> my counsel, my thought to learn how to listen to what he's. Mm-hmm. And yet, even in that, because of his eminency, he, we can bring those thoughts to him and he will shape them into what is true. When we allow it, when we submit it to what he has. Remember Jesus in the garden. I think there's something so key about this. When Jesus says, yet, yet not what I want, but what you want. What was Jesus in reality doing? He was taking his human nature and he was submitting that to God the Father, even though he was divided in because remember there is a nature within him that is divine and so his divine nature says no i have to do this but his human nature says if there's any other way and so he takes that nature and he says i'm going to submit it to you to your will and i think in that we find incredible instruction in how we ought to respond just because of time i have to keep god loved to remember we're coming back to this next week and it's going to be a lot of dialogue Uh, Verse 18, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Now, uh, I'm just going to summarize this section. He goes on, he talks about the idols, and he says, you know, you craft an idol, and you find somebody to put gold on it. And if you can't afford gold, you get get a tree, you know, a cedar tree that's going to survive, and you get somebody to craft that. Think about that. How ludicrous is it that mankind throughout history has, has fashioned things that they would worship in relation to God. Isn't that ridiculous? And yet how often do we do that? How often do we take something that has been fashioned by human hands and worship it or worry about it or some other thing? Um, do you, Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Uh, Galen brought up about uh, governments and things like that. You read through here, verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. We worry about you know, our government, things like that. Do you realize that the government that we have is the government that God wants us to have right now at this moment? Mm-hmm. Whether it's good or bad. When Nero was in charge of Rome or Domitian, in, uh, so think about the book of Revelation. Domitian was in charge. He was the emperor of Rome. Horrible guy. Nero, horrible guy. That was the leader that God wanted at that time. And we say, why? That doesn't make sense. Well, remember, he's not comprehensible. He's transcendent. We don't need to understand him. We don't need to instruct him. But he also provides his nearness in those moments, I had this discussion with somebody last Sunday. You know, what's going to happen to us as things continue to get worse? God is able to save his people through trials, through tribulation, through difficulty. He knows how to rescue his people through those things. Do we want to go through them? I don't know. But I have confidence that the God that we serve is able to bring us through. Uh, just, yeah. Is the word you really want wanted or allowed? 
say that again. Is the word you were just, you used the word wanted. He wanted Nero. He wanted. Is it wanted or allowed? What's the, you're making a distinction without a difference? To me, wanted means this is God's design that mm-hmm. he wants Nero to, mm-hmm. as opposed to because of humanness, he allowed it so he could be there in his glory and power and love mm-hmm. has the ability to be shown so we can change and then submit to him. I think you messed up. What I'm saying, by making a distinction between those terms, you're making a distinction between that there are some other force that could be involved in that process. If he is sovereign, what he wants is what he wills and it's what he decrees. Make sense? In other words, the wants and the wishes of God are the same as what he wills to be and what he allows to be and therefore what he decrees. Make sense? I mean... Yeah, it's a it's a very very difficult theological concept to get to, and I will tell you if you want to read it, read the third chapter of the Westminster Confession, which talks about um, you know everything that it goes into it. But basically, that's the idea um, that that in the concept of the sovereignty of God, those things that He wants that are so. What are the wants of God? They are consistent with his nature, right? And so those things that are consistent with his nature are the things he's going to allow to happen, will to happen. And so it gets a little deep in the weeds, but yeah. Do you not feel that um, these rulers you're talking about that were that persecuted the Christians, so it's kind of ironic, Gail and I had listened to, it was our first Peter or something on this thing we can get through the church and Nero, they were talking about mm-hmm. what he did to the Christians and how they were persecuted because everyone was upset with him, so he had blamed someone, so the Christians were to blame. And I feel like today that, not that they're blaming the Christians, but we have to become stronger mm-hmm. and stand firm in our beliefs because there are so many things that are so crazy going on, like with this abortion law, that we, are, we know that's not something that God, he allows it, I think for us to be stronger and to uh, just stand on his on the faith we have in him, mm-hmm. like you said, he's always going to bring us through it as long as we're strong and weighted in, in his <coughs> his belief. I don't know if he's right, but we have to become stronger. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite as outspoken, but uh, I feel like that. We're in a turmoil as far as the way the country is, but we have it so much better than so many mm-hmm. places. Let's stop and talk about this because I, I, it seems like you, you are definitely there. Which of these characteristics of God, his transcendence or his imminence, brings him more glory? If the chief end of man is God's glory, if that is the chief end of all that is, God's glory, which of those two brings God more glory? His transcendence being above all, in control of all, or his imminence? His imminence? Say that again. Because we have, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Does that mean it's going to happen right now? Or eventually? 
What I'm saying, when God is near to us, when he is comforting us, when he is consoling us, does that bring him more glory or his authority and sovereignty over the world in which we live in bring him more glory? He wants us to be near to him. So it's a trick question. I'm going to tell you that. They are equal. They both bring him the ultimate glory. His victory over evil brings him glory, and his bringing people through brings him glory. There is nothing that brings him less glory. So the question comes back to why would God allow a Nero, a Hitler, a Stalin? The answer is it brings him glory. It ultimately brings, why does God, let, let's take people out of it. Why does God allow Satan? Why didn't God just annihilate Satan and, and be done with it? Because he wanted to show his glory. And in showing forth his glory, he created a people who would be with him forever as a demonstration of his glory. So in that process, there is, you have to remember this is what is always at stake, if you will, in the divine. It is the glory of God. It is his supremeness. The, the sum total of all that he is, is always what is at stake. Now, here's, here's where we get our theology confused. Here we are, right? What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, where do we live? right there. And so we tend to interpret things based on our experiences rather than revelation. And this is the totality of the book of Isaiah. You cannot look at the world around you and make sense of the world around you unless it is instructed by the truth of God. Unless it is instructed by his revelation of what he is doing. Okay? You know, Isaiah looked around and he said, hmm, I, Uzziah died. What in the world's happening and God says, calm down. Let me tell you what's really happening. I'm on the throne. I'm not worried. I'm in control. And the angels are still saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Okay? Does that make sense? Right? This gets, uh, these concepts get um, into the weeds, especially as they affect uh, the reason that I chose to do this class this way is to talk about the attribute of God. And then next week we're going to talk about, okay, how do I live with that reality? How do I live with God is both transcendent and imminent, and those two things are in equal balance. And, and how do I uh, face Monday? How do I face Tuesday? Whatever, whatever Monday brings and Tuesday brings and Wednesday brings. Because I don't know about you. Do you know what Monday's going to bring? The weathermen don't even know what the weather's going to be on Monday. But there is one who knows what Monday is going to bring. There is one who knows what Tuesday is going to bring. There is one who knows what Wednesday is going to bring. And so he is both near and he sits enthroned above all that is. Does that make sense? Um, comments, questions. I, I, I'm not quite done with what I wanted to talk about, but I think we're at a good stopping place. I think you get the idea of what Isaiah, he's just showing these, uh, there, and it will be in my notes, he's showing examples 
of God's transcendency and God's imminency. And it ends with his, with his two fundamental attributes that we get from Romans 1. In Romans 1, we read, to me, the, one of the most fascinating uh, things in all of, all of Scripture. All men are without excuse, and they are without excuse why? Because of nature, because God, there are two things that are revealed about God in nature that mankind cannot not know. What are those two things? His divine nature and his eternal power. You cannot look at nature and not see those things unless you disbelieve. That's basically the idea of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. And so basically uh, Isaiah is doing the same thing that Romans 1 is doing here. It is declaring who God is. God is revealing himself to us. And, and we can say, I can have complete confidence in that God because he is powerful enough to overcome evil and he is comforting enough to walk me through it. Powerful enough to overcome, comforting enough to walk me through it. Yes. Old Testament, New Testament. Yep. Yep. What's amazing is the more and more you begin to read and put those things together where you allow the Bible to translate itself, to to, uh, interpret itself, excuse me, you begin to see those things. Yes. Very good point. Brilliant mind. He must not have an aging brain. (laughs) Any, (laughs) Any other comments or questions? before we go so next week uh, as I said we will do more of a a lot more table talk a lot more interaction so in preparation for that here's what I want to ask and, and this is not homework this is just keep this in mind for next week try and sit um at tables where, where you're together because, you know, like for you guys, I mean, if you like each other that much and you want to have that detailed of a conversation, but you're going to want to sit where you have a group of people. Uh, plus, it's just a great opportunity to get to know somebody, right? Um, two things that I want to share with you in closing. Um, while we are called to uh, declare the transcendency of God we get the opportunity to participate in the imminency of God all the time, right? The comfort that flows into our lives, 2 Corinthians, is given to us so that it can flow into other people. So two things I wanted to say. If you did not get the opportunity to hear Sam's testimony last week, I, I mean, is that online somewhere or anywhere? Do you know, Sam? Yeah. Okay. I would encourage you to do it. Um, but the reason that I bring it up, I want to make sure that we pray for Sam. Secondly, there is a couple that sometimes attends our class, Jerry and Sally Smith. Uh, You may know them. Sally is in the uh, wheelchair. And uh, Jerry recently lost his job. Um, And she has told me that it's okay to share this with you. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to be praying with them that uh, Jerry would find uh, new employment. Um, He is a... I, I guess you would call him like a chief intelligence officer is kind of the, 
the, the field that he's in, he does a lot with computers, hardware, software for higher learning institutions. Um, I don't know if they're going to stay here or what they're going to do, but just be praying with them. Uh, Sally is also an author. She writes, so they have some book sales and things like that that, that account for some income, but just please be praying for them. Uh, the biggest initial prayer request that I got from them was this. There was a mistake in the way their COBRA paperwork was done, and so there's a short lapse uh, that, there, that might happen. Um, and their medicines are quite expensive. Um, when she told me the amount, uh, you know, <laughs> my heart kind of skipped a beat. I mean, my, mine are expensive, but they're nothing like that. So uh, just be praying that um, that situation would be resolved. Um, there are some opportunities that it would be resolved, but just for a job and then also for the medicines. So with that in mind, let's pray, shall we? Father, we... We come before you um, grateful that you are who you are. And God, uh, like the poet from long of old, we, we remind ourselves that we uh, are finite. We cannot communicate with a God who is transcendent unless we communicate um, out of despair in faith hoping that you are there, that you listen to us. There is no reason that you have to listen to us. But God, your loving kindness is always there, willing to listen to us. So God, we come before you and we ask um, for Sam, first of all, we thank you for his testimony, for his boldness in sharing his story. God, I pray that you will continue to open the eyes of his heart, that you will teach him how wide how deep, how long, how high your love is for him. God, how much you want him to know you and to be known by you. Uh, Father, I pray that you will continue his journey of faith uh, and thank you for his testimony. Thank you for your grace in his life. We pause and we give you honor because of what you have done. And Father, for our friends, brothers and sister. Uh, Jerry and Sally, we ask that your hand would be mighty. We ask that you would come alongside and meet the needs that they have. God, use us in any way that you see fit uh, in that process. God, we know that you are able. We know that you are capable of handling these situations, but we also know that you want us to learn to walk with other people, to grieve with those who grieve, to uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so, God, we submit ourselves to you, to your plan, to your truth. And so, Father, we ask that you will uh, meet these needs that Jerry and Sally have and that you will work in us and through us to help those be met. We are truly grateful for the time that you have given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that Isaiah recorded these things. God, I pray that you will help us to grasp what it is that you are teaching us. I pray that you will help us to grasp who you are. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things, that his name would be magnified, that he would be the one who receives the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. 
For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.